Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And I'm still sick, listeners. I'm sorry. I think this is just how I sound now forever. Yes, this is your permanent <laughs> state of being. Yep. Yep. Well, I guess we'll both just sound a little bit froggy all the time because that's also my resting default. I have been rolling into this cold for like, I, sorry, I'm rolling into my second week on this cold. No, second month. Sorry. Second month <laughs> on this cold. That's a big distinction. It's <laughs> a pretty big distinction. Joe was like, maybe you need to take some time off. And I was like, yeah, I guess. So I guess I'm sick forever. Cool. Like, <laughs> no, it's really easy. Just pawn off a kid onto your family over the holidays and be like, mama needs to take a spa vacation. <laughs> Oh, Mama just wants to go to sleep so badly. <laughs> I think that's just called parenthood, Brenna. Uh, I think so, too. I guess I feel awake again, like, week, I don't know, like, year, sorry, 18 or 19, maybe. Yeah, maybe. You'll get there. It's going to be fine. It's going to yeah. be fine. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but we're back so that we can yeah. talk about a book and we a movie. Are. A book and a movie in translation with subtitles, and I did it. You did it. I did it. Maybe it's because this had human beings in it and you didn't have to try to pay attention to the animation style. I think that helped. I also think it helped that I knew it was going to be subtitled and I was smart and I broke it into two viewings. So I watched it 45 minutes one day and 45 minutes the next and I could pay attention for the whole 45 minutes. Good, yeah. And if listeners don't really understand what we're talking about, you can go back and listen to our Howl's Moving Castle episode where Brenna confessed that she sometimes struggles with subtitles. I find them to be a significant cognitive load for my tiny brain. This is fair. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) People want to hear an elaborate discussion about that. Go and listen to that episode. It's a good one. Not as many of you did as I thought you would. So this is (gasps) me finger waving. (laughs) But no, so what are we talking about, Brenna? We are talking about uh, the book in English is called Why We Took the Car. It was called Chick in German, I believe, by mm-hmm. Wolfgang Herndorf. And the film was called Goodbye Berlin in English, but also Chick in German. Yes. And I really enjoyed both. I, it was a great experience. Joe and I were just talking off the top before we started recording about how something a little bit different, but it's also something not a little bit different. And that juxtaposition is kind of fun. Indeed, yes. So we should also give a shout out to Miriam. Yes. So Miriam is one of our, probably one of our most dedicated and long lasting listeners. I feel like we've been interacting with her for almost the entirety of the year that we've been doing this. And she politely requested that we consider this as an option many, many months ago. And we are only now just getting to it. So thank you, Miriam. This was a great suggestion. And I can't wait to dig into this. And one of the things that's fun about Miriam is that she's not just a fan and a listener, and she doesn't just tweet us, but she reads along most of the time when she can find Mm -hmm. the copies of the books where she is in Europe. So that's awesome. She also posts pictures of the books, which is fascinating. I I think in the future, I might get us to do a mini-sode topic just on covers of books. Yes, and titles. Yes, and how they do or do not represent the content and so on, because I think that's very fascinating. That would be actually a super fun episode to do. And um, yeah, so anyway, Miriam, thank you. Yes. But before that, we have some homework, yes, which is more do. listener mail. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. 
So it's been a couple of weeks for us since the Watership Down episode dropped. And at the time, one of the things that we asked people was whether or not this book had any kind of cultural impact in other countries, because we as North Americans felt like it hadn't really had the same kind of impact that it had had in its native UK. So we ended up hearing back from two different people, Brenna. Yes, we did. Joe was so excited to get Watership Down email you guys. He was like, this made his heart sing. <laughs> well, because I honestly thought that that episode might drop and no one would listen to mm -hmm. it because I legitimately didn't know if anybody knew what this book was. So we ended up hearing back from two people. So the first one is from Daryl. And he writes, a note on the unknown nature of the book in the United States. I think part of it has to do with the marketing. Mm. I first read the book at age 16 or 17, but I picked it up from the adult fiction section of Barnes & Nobles, mm. which uh, for international listeners is a very well-known book chain. I think the reputation of the violence in the book and the movie has preceded it, and the corporate people at Barnes & Nobles, and probably even the indie bookstore people, don't want that in their YA or children's section. So for that reason, it's always stocked in Barnes Nobles, which for many people in the US might be the closest and only bookstore, mm. and it's always in the adult fiction section. So if you think about it, a young adult person would have to go to the adult section and specifically pick it up from there. So that may help to explain why it doesn't have that same kind of impact because people think it's an adult book but then it also has this classic book cover of the 50s oh good tie-in daryl <laughs> <laughs> which could feel like a turnoff to adults right so it's a book for teenagers and young adults but it's in the adult fiction section but it's got a book cover that doesn't look appealing to adults so maybe it's not hitting anybody as a result i'm kind of fascinated by this because it suggests that for a book that is such a classic in the UK that it, it maybe it landed in North America with very little attention to marketing our audience. Mm -hmm. You know, like it was just an assumption like, oh, this book was a big seller over here. We'll just, we'll just put a cover on it and sell it. Yeah. And I'm also... <laughs> it's just that easy. <laughs> it's just that easy. And I'm also fascinated by the idea of what are the ripple effects of the way we try to quote unquote protect teens from content we don't want them to see? Like this is a, this could potentially be that, right? Yeah, I think what you're talking about is just another form of censorship, right? It's we need to protect the children by not even letting them know that this book exists mm -hmm. by not marketing it to them. And it's, if you take away the discoverability, I really hate that word, but if you take away discoverability <laughs> for a text, I mean, you basically like render it non-existent at a certain level. Like, yeah. I mean, this is kind of philosophical, but like if if the book can't be found by the people who want to find the book, then what? purpose is there in its existence oh wow i just oh, got real wow. deep yeah i know <laughs> sit with your coffee and ponder that folks <laughs> um yeah it's interesting right because i mean i don't think there's any reason this can't be it's certainly a crossover book it could be shelved in both but it is mm -hmm. ultimately a journey of self-discovery in the way of all the great ya books so right I mean, I think it's a book that you can read as an adult, but I think it's a book that impacts you if you read it as a young adult or teen. I think so, too. Yeah, yeah, it's a challenging read, but part of the reason that it has the longevity and the impact is because it's so valuable for people who are coming of age and yes. figuring out their identities to read it. Yes, yes. 
Huh. That's fascinating. I'm really, I appreciate the kind of cultural context that we can get from listeners sometimes. Like, this is really useful information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Daryl did have a second part to that email, and we're actually going to tackle it in a future mini-sode. He asked about the definition, like, how do we define young adult literature, and has that changed, and so on. So I'm going to park that discussion, and I think we'll address it maybe in January, Brenna. Which is a good reminder, folks, that if you have burning questions that are maybe not specific to a single book, you want to know our take on a particular issue, you want a recommendation for a teen in your life who's going through a particular moment, like any kind of specific topic or question like that, that's what the minisodes are going to be for. So we're stockpiling a few things. We've got a couple. Do definitely keep them coming over the holidays because we're really looking forward to this aspect of the directionship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can shoot those off to hkhspod at gmail.com and we'll stockpile them for the future. Yay! Yay! So the second response to Watership Down comes from Emily, who is a listener in Tasmania. What? Yeah, I okay, feel cool. like we've got two people who listen to the podcast in Australia or Tasmania more specifically. So it's always fun to hear from our international listeners. Very cool. Emily writes that she was really excited that we covered the book and she read it for year 10 English and loved it. And it was foundational for her understanding of good governance Mm. because she loves how it makes ideas and criticisms accessible to young people. And she was like, I definitely want to be Woundwort when I grow up. That's what she did. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, (laughs) Brenna. Well, I just, I was thinking about that when I read Emily's email that like, it could go either way, couldn't it? Really? Couldn't you be like, well, Woundward does survive in the end, does he not? Well, mm. that's the thing. I've been interested in Woundward as a character because he is obviously flawed and the way that he governs is irresponsible to the goals of the larger people. But in a way, he's also created this system that unlike the other Warren that they encounter with the snares, he has created a way that protects his people And it gives them a a kind of regimented system. Like, is it over the top? Yes. Has it outgrown its usefulness? Yes. But at the end of the day, he's being a very strong, capable leader. And I kind of love the idea that he survives and goes into myth Mm. as a side, this, you know, leader who could still be out there and, you know, doing other fascinating things. Like, did he learn from those mistakes that he made and so on? It's interesting because in our current political moment with some of our leaders here in North America, not speaking about exclusively one or the other, but both have in their first terms made weird comments that express something of a kind of envy for totalitarian regimes and what they're able to get done, right? Like Trudeau's made some pretty sketch comments about China and Trump has made obviously, yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously his devotion to Russia is second to none. And I'm, I can see why that would be the case. Like, I'm not, not justifying it. But, like, I imagine trying to get done whatever you think is, like, quote-unquote, for the best as a democratic leader must mm-hmm. feel exhausting, like, a lot of the time. And I could totally see looking at a totalitarian regime and being like, mm, I mean, They're I don't want all of that, done. but just, like, a tablespoon of that could get, yeah. <laughs> right? And I think Woundwort is that in this book. Because you're right, he keeps them safe. I mean, they're miserable, especially the female rabbits, right? Mm-hmm. But they are safe. And again, I mean, I think that's one of the tensions in the book, right? Complacency and comfort. And like, what does comfort cost? And what is what is worth paying for it? 
Yeah, so Emily actually touches on both the female rabbits as well as Woundwort. She talks about the scene where Bigwig and Woundwort have their their tete-a-tete, and Woundwort finds out that there's an even bigger, stronger rabbit. <gasps> My quote, fave scene. This is her favorite scene in the book, and it's because the fear that Woundward feels in that moment is emblematic of the fear that fuels his despotic government style. So he pretends to be brave by being violent, but he's also afraid that one day someone bigger and stronger and a bigger bully than him will come along and surpass him. Which is a, is so true, right? Like, that's yep. why he idolizes Bigwig, right? Because here's someone that is his equal in every measure, and he... He's fascinated with whether or not he can bully him into complacency or whether he can beat him in a physical match. So yes. the idea that there might be someone bigger and stronger is terrifying to Woundward. Yeah, and it's just, it is such a perfect metaphor for the way totalitarian regimes seem to function, right? That when leadership is based in fear, that seems to be the inevitable outgrowth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, with regard to the female rabbits, Emily says that this is very frustrating. She's got some information that we didn't know. So apparently, Richard Adams wrote this story as an out loud bedside story for his young daughter, and she helped him remember it so that he could turn it into a novel. So that makes the elimination of the female rabbits all that more frustrating and annoying even because you're creating this magical story for a really important person in your life and then you cut their gender out of the story completely. Uh, uh, I have so many feelings about this. Oh my goodness. Very frustrating. Oh gosh. Uh, So one final thing that she mentions is that she questions whether it didn't work as well in the U.S. because there's no mention or allegory for capitalism in the book. Mm. The society that they end up with is, if anything, socialist. And of course, that is a type of political system that does not lend itself well. Yeah, it's interesting because it is very much a commentary on the Cold War in terms of resisting sort of brutal control and resisting totalitarianism but it's definitely not uh, an anti-communist book for sure Mm -hmm. so that's a really interesting perspective on it that i hadn't considered yeah so uh thanks to both daryl and emily for writing in and yeah there's a a follow-up stuff in both emails that we will be addressing in the new year so folks who write in we respond we do we respond and we'll be saving stuff for the minisodes too and if you want something tackled like in a mini-sode, you can say that in your note. Yeah. I have just a really brief homework, which is something that Joe sent me this week that I just wanted to highlight. Our listeners know that Joe and I are Canadian. We mm-hmm. are recording in Canada. And we very occasionally get to actually talk about Canadian books, but they don't get adapted so no. often, so it's harder. But uh, we'll link this story in the show notes, I think, Joe. But the CBC ran a list of 100 young adult books that make you proud to be Canadian. Mm-hmm. And nationalism notwithstanding, the list is really good in terms of the good. range and yeah. breadth of what's being published in Canada. Best of all, it's an incredibly diverse list. They did a really good job of including historical stories and contemporary stories. There's indigenous writers here. There's writers of color. There's queer stories. Uh, it's just, it's a pretty good list, I have to say. I've read many of the books on it. So anyway, we'll link it in the show notes just for our listeners who maybe have some questions about what Canadian children's lit looks like. If you liked The Lesser Blessed, for example, there's definitely some more books on this list that echo that mm-hmm. type of storytelling. 
Yeah, and two of our author excerpt interviews, two of those people made the list. So we've got a book from Tim Wynne-Jones as well as Carrie Ann Learn. We sure do. And there's also um, really great representation like regionally. So if you read across this list, you'd get a good sense of sort of what Canlit looks like. I have to say it's a pretty good list. There's even some comics included, at least two. So yeah, worth checking out for sure. And um, my particular fave that I was happy to see on this list is a book called Alice, I think, which actually was a CTV TV series, Joe. We could do it at some point if we could find those old episodes. Okay. Not super old, like mid-2000s. Right. It's a book, and then I think there's two or three sequels um, about a young girl named Alice who is growing up basically in like an artist's colony on Vancouver Island or on the Sunshine Coast. But she's super, super rural, but also like her family is really eclectic and her experiences are really eclectic. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun and very, very funny. And that's Alice, I think, by Susan Juby. Cool. Yeah, I was excited to see, taking it to the other side of the country, I was excited to see how much East Coast literature there is, mm-hmm. specifically set in the Maritimes, because there's a lot of regional specificity that comes yes. out of that area, and just a lot of pride from people. So I yeah. was happy to see representation, yeah, from obviously across the country, but specifically where you see like, oh, wow, there's going to be some really unique cultural flavor that comes out of this text so i'm not gonna lie i i definitely loaded up my holds list even more yeah. one that's from uh, set in newfoundland written in newfoundland is bay girl by heather smith okay i got to read an advanced cop reading copy of that when it came out a few years ago and it's really fantastic if you like a plucky heroine and real life problems like she does not come from a happy family but she herself is a complete delight uh i strongly recommend bay girl it's a difficult read at times but worth it just to have a a girl protagonist who is so strong and feisty and cool love it love Mm -hmm. it okay shall we dig into shtick (laughs) shtick there we go shtick I think we should. The T is silent. <laughs> My German pronunciation is horrible. So let's see how this goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed this book. I have to say, Joe, like I was not sure if I was going to. You know, we've had some um, false starts with our young male protagonists lately. Mm-hmm. And I definitely don't think that Mike is the pinnacle of young manhood vis-a-vis his views on women, but wow, is it ever leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of the stuff we've been reading lately. I completely agree. I did get a little bit of a John Green <laughs> vibe, but to me, this this book is most similar to our very, uh, our false start mm-hmm. with I Love You, Beth Cooper. Yes. It felt like an extended version of that, but done right. Yes. This is like what I wanted to get out of I Love You, Beth Cooper, and People can go back and listen to that episode, which is just us having an absolutely disastrous time with both the book and the film. And this, to me, feels like what that should have been. And it's it's not without its faults in the way that these characters are not saints. They're not always good or right. And some of their views are a little bit antiquated or reductive even. But that's part of what makes the book work, right? Is that they are flawed. Yes, definitely. There's just, I don't know. In I Love You, Beth Cooper, the biggest problem was that the author hated his characters, right? Like, there was just, (laughs) none of those people were good and the author didn't want us to think any of them had any redeeming qualities whatsoever. This is, what if the 
geeky outcast protagonist from I Love You, Beth Cooper gets to have the same kind of rollicking adventure, but the author cares about him enough (laughs) to make him whole. And yeah, that does mean that he's got flaws, but he's a whole person. I just, Mm -hmm. I really, it was nice. Yeah. It was a really pleasant read. So I guess I should uh, do the plot synopsis. Yeah, give it a go. I'm going to try to not pronounce anything wrong. So good luck me. Okay. Um, (laughs) So our protagonist is Mike or Mike, I think, in the the English translation that I have anyway. Yeah. He's 14. He comes from a very affluent family. Like his family is incredibly wealthy or was. They're on a downward trajectory. His father has lost a lot of money. Made a bad investment. Made a bad investment, some real estate speculation, and they are on the downward slide financially, but he lives in a beautiful home. He has, you know, beautiful things. This family has a pool that is a significant plot point frequently in the text. But at the same time, it's a wildly dysfunctional family too. So mm-hmm. Mike's mother is an alcoholic. When we meet them at the beginning of the text, she's drunk at the country club and playing tennis and heading off to rehab his father is just awful his dad is the worst that is one of the worst dads we've come across and that We're is just saying, saying something, something. <laughs> seriously like but like you have to read into it like he doesn't present as terrible but the fact that the mom is going off to rehab and the dad just immediately pieces out with his much younger lover and says here mike i've given you 200 euros take care of yourself for two weeks i'm gonna be gone for 14 days he says i'm like that is insane and he's such a bad like he doesn't even i mean he tries to like lie but he's like we've got a business meeting it's gonna last 14 days it's so gross everything about it is so gross so Mike is left on his own. And the other thing that has happened that is significant in his life, so we're at the start of summer break, basically. So mm-hmm. his father is gone off with his lady friend and his mother is in rehab. And they're supposed to be the party of the year on the second day of break. Uh, Tatiana, the girl who Mike is in love with, mm-hmm. is having a birthday party, a sleepover birthday party for the whole school. And so he, as soon as he finds out about it, he spends time pouring his energy into creating a picture for her. She's obsessed with Beyonce. So he draws Beyonce for her, apparently beautifully. It's Beyonce, but she has Tatiana's eyes, he says. And he does this picture for her. Anyway, as we all see coming. Granular. What? (laughs) Granular. The picture doesn't matter. (laughs) It does matter. It's nice. Anyway, fine. As we should all see coming, he does not, in fact, get invited to the party. In the movie version, they make it so that he's the only one who doesn't get invited. But in the book, it's really just like everybody of his social strata does not get invited to the party. Yeah. All the losers and dorks. All the losers and dorks. And this one new classmate, Andre, whose last name is Russian and very long, and nobody in the book can pronounce it, um, but they call him Chick for short. Yeah. And he is also not invited to the party. And with the two of them at sea, we don't know anything about Chick's family, except that it's obviously not very good. He comes to school drunk. We just find out about him really when he shows up at Mike's house with a stolen car, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty much? Basically. And he hangs out with Mike for a bit. He enjoys the pool. They play video games together and they sort of develop this kind of friendship of convenience, but also this friendship of having been socially ostracized that brings them both together. Yes. Chick finds out about the picture and convinces Mike that he has to go to the party and give the picture to Tatiana. So they do. And it's sort of a moment of um, empowerment for 
uh, Mike because it's something he would never normally have done. It's something where he kind of takes control of his own life for a minute, doesn't just let the sort of social hierarchy of the school control everything about his existence. Yeah, and it really reinforces to him that he not only has the ability to be an active agent in his own life, but that without the interference of someone else, he is inclined to just hole up and feel sorry for himself. Like, this is the way that he deals with his social ostracization. So he needs somebody to come along and give him a bit of a kick in the butt. Yes, and it teaches him that he can trust Schick, right? That Schick, yes. when he says something that sounds outlandish, it maybe actually is a good idea, which is not a lesson that serves him entirely well in the long haul. This is true. So the two of them decide that they've got basically two weeks stretched out ahead of them. This is all only the second day of break. So they are going on a road trip. And uh, they are 14. I feel like I don't know if I made that clear enough. They are 14. And evidently the legal age for driving in Germany appears to be 18 based on some of the language in the text. I think so. Yeah. So they are not allowed to be driving this car. And there's a huge portion of the text that's dedicated to them trying to avoid discovery by adults in various circumstances. And doing things like making mustaches and goatees for themselves out of duct tape, hoping it will make them look older when they're past at speed on the Autobahn, which was a scene I found very funny. Uh, it rings so true to <laughs> your mentality as an early teenager where you think this disguise is good enough to get me by. Yep. <laughs> it's great. And they have a series of sort of wacky hijinks on the road together. Um, they come across this like weird kind of, I don't know, are they in like a religious cult or something? They're just a very oh, lovely family, but there's something. I have so many questions about that about family. Them. Yeah. So they have that experience. They need to siphon gas so they find a dump they're looking for a host and they find a girl who seems to be scavenging there who travels with them for some time offers mike a, a sexual awakening that he doesn't take her up on they crash the car and end up having to be taken to the hospital by this speech pathologist who is lovely one of the recurring lessons that mike learns is that he's to been... stop judging people by yeah. the covers. He's been trained by his father to really believe that the world is full of bad people and is ultimately a bad place. And mm-hmm. he slowly discovers that, like, I mean, even when they come across the dude who appears to have been a former Nazi who shoots at them. And maybe a pedophile. And maybe a pedophile. But even he, and they end up having, like, a perfectly pleasant interaction with him. So one of the things that keeps coming back for Mike is this idea that actually maybe everybody is good first before they are all the other things that they are yeah don't assume the worst in people because oftentimes they will surprise you which is a great lesson it is a great lesson and you know it really ends up shifting the way he thinks about things because like when they meet the speech pathologist all he can see about her is that she's a fat woman yes and the language in it as a heads up to folks there's some pretty fat phobic language and there's some pretty um troubled language around sexuality although that gets explained at the end of the text Mm mm-hmm I think we're dropping the R word in the movie, but I couldn't remember if we read it in the book. I couldn't either. It just struck me in the subtitles because I was like, oh, there it is. Yeah. But what he comes to realize is that actually the speech pathologist is incredibly lovely. They would not have gotten out of that situation without her. And she's so kind. She's so kind. And he was a dick for treating her the way that he did on his first impression of her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So anyway, the journey has to come to an end after the car crash. They get the car recovered from the car crash, right? Yes. And it then... has been towed to right across the street from the hospital. So they get back into it and it still works. And it still works, but shit can't drive anymore because he's got a broken foot. So he has his foot in a cast. So Mike mm-hmm. has to drive who, and he's only ever driven on like 
country roads. And at first it goes okay. They make it onto the some sort of highway anyway, but then mm-hmm. they get behind this semi-truck hauling pigs and yep. the semi-truck driver doesn't seem to recognize it. He's hauling a pretty precarious load because he's being a giant dick about not letting the boys pass him on mm-hmm. the highway. And uh, the next thing they know, the truck is jackknifed. There are dead pigs everywhere and the boys have <laughs> smashed into the back of the tractor trailer. Yes. And it should be noted that the story is entirely told in flashbacks. So that's actually where the book opens. And then we return to it at the end to talk about the fallout. Yes. And the fallout is that Schick is condemned to stay in a home for juvenile delinquents where he's not allowed to have visitors, although that provision seems to be lifted after their trial. Mike gets community service in an old folks home. And the school year starts again and suddenly people are kind of interested in Mike because he's had this he's crazy experience and he's a bad boy now. And he he also has this opportunity to meet up with Issa again. That's the girl who they met in the dump. But in both cases, that plot line isn't followed through. So we don't no. see Mike chasing down either Tatiana or Issa. Instead, the book ends with Mike and his mother throwing all their belongings into their pool because the father has left to go look for an apartment with his new fancy lady Um, and the neighbors end up calling the cops and (laughs) Mike and his mother jump into the pool and he has this great line at the end about how you kind of can't hold your breath forever but you can actually hold it for for some amount of time right like this idea that you can survive the bumps even when they're they're pretty awful bumps so I like the way the book was left with quite a lot of uncertainty I loved it There's so little resolution to this, which befits the entire novel. Like we never see Schick again, for example. We just find out that another Lada has been stolen in town. And so there's this sense of like, maybe he's, maybe he is getting out of that juvenile hall. So we never meet him again. And, but, but the text is really carefully constructed. Herndorf does a really good job. I felt anyway, that at the end of the book, Mike is a lot more resilient than he was at the beginning of the book. So nothing yes. is resolved, and yet I have every confidence that he will ultimately be okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. It became his best summer. The two weeks that they were on the road taught him the life lessons that he needs to learn to survive and become a functional adult. Yes. It's, it's honestly a very impressive piece of writing. But I also feel like it would be so easy to misinterpret the intention if you're not paying attention. And that's part of what I find so interesting about the book is that I could see people looking at it and seeing, oh, it's just a number of unusual adventures. And this actually, I think, comes to the foreground more in the film as mm-hmm. opposed to the book. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder if people read this and didn't get all of the takeaway messages i could be very wrong this book was incredibly successful it was incredibly successful yeah so um a little bit of context on that it's won several awards so um the highest award for german children's literature as far as i know um it won uh, i'm not going to try to say it but in english it's the german children's literature award fair and a prize called the Clemens Britano Prize. Uh, it also won another significant award. It's been published in 25 countries, sold over 2 million copies in Germany alone. It's a very popular book. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense that this book would be adapted into a film. This is one of those cases where, again, I have to thank Miriam because... Yeah, we would never have found this otherwise. No, which is astounding to me because there's also nothing in this book. I mean, there's a lot in this book that is particularly German, and I kind of want to try to tease some of that out. 
but this is a universal story. Yep. Did you know that there's a sequel? I did read that, but I also know that it was published posthumously yeah. because this author died, I think, very shortly after. He did, yeah. Unfortunately, he um, committed suicide in Berlin in 2013. Oh, I didn't know that that was how he died. Yeah, yeah, it was. And so this book was published in 2010, I believe, in Germany. So he didn't even live to see the English translation come out in 2014. Hmm. But the sequel that was published posthumously is called Pictures of Your True Love, and it tells the fallout from this story from Iza's perspective. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, because I can imagine that people would read this book and be frustrated by the female characters because this is so squarely set from Mike's perspective. Mm-hmm. Tatiana is not a character. She oh, God, no. Is, she is a John Green. She's not a manic pixie dream girl because we don't even know enough about <laughs> her to make that assumption. <laughs> it's true. She's literally just an object of affection that Mike can project all of his wants and desires yeah. onto. And in that regard, that's fine because it's so significant that Mike doesn't really even think of her as a person. She literally just becomes a picture in his mind that he puts onto paper. Yeah. Whereas Issa is a fascinating character. She's a girl that we know virtually nothing about, but she is so memorable in this book. And she just ducks out of the narrative when you think that something more significant is going to happen. She's like, oh, there's a bus that's going to Prague. I'm trying to get to my sister. And if I stick with you two boys, I will (laughs) never get there. And she just whisks out of this narrative. And then we get the letter at the end of the book that says, hey, I'm going to come to Berlin. Maybe we can meet up. And that's it. So there's so much more that I would love to know about Issa. Me too. I actually would really like to read the book. It's So it's called Pictures of Your Love. I don't know if I said that. And it starts with her escaping a mental hospital. Can see it. Hitchhiking into a village, stealing from a grocery store, spending a night in a cornfield. So all of these, it's all about her sort of her sort of itinerant journey to find the boys. Um, But apparently, I haven't read it, but I'm just judging by this uh, lengthy synopsis I've been looking at. At the end of the, I mean, she also pieces out (laughs) in the book by the sounds of it. Like that scene where she gets on the bus, it pretty much is the end of the book. If you've read it, listeners, let us know if I'm wrong. I'm going to try to find a copy of it, but my library doesn't have it. Oh, yeah. I gathered it's not as popular. No, I don't think it has been, which, you know, is sort of a thing. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about the relationship between these two boys because I I couldn't find out a ton about how reflective of German society this is, but I can't help but think that it's incredibly significant that should I just call him Andre so that I don't embarrass myself the rest of this podcast? I've been staying Schick and you can schick. say it with me if you want. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so Schick is a Russian we say immigrant, he describes himself as a <laughs> Jewish gypsy. Part of the fun of Schick is that he is difficult to pin down. So He's got family literally everywhere, according to him, too, right? Like every time mm-hmm. somebody mentions a town, he's like, oh, yeah, I have family there. Yeah. And initially, their journey is to actually go and see his family. And they don't live in, in Germany, even. So the original intention was to just drive south. We also discover over the course of the narrative that Chick is gay, and that helps to reframe a lot of the 
unsavory dialogue that they have about queer identities. So Mike is frequently questioned about his sexuality. Yeah. And there's a a lot of un-PC language about queer identities throughout the course of the book. But I don't know. There's something so fascinating to me that this book takes as its two main protagonists a boy who is white and affluent and from the good part of town and then matches him up with this person who shakes up his world but is clearly presented as an outsider not just within the social structure of the high school but also the country itself. Yes and I'm interested too in the way one of the things that I that frustrated me about the adaptation, and I know we'll get there, is that they flatten out that class difference between the two of them, right? They make it a really sort of straightforward, like, you're rich and you're poor kind of class yeah. difference, when really there's this added layer in the book that, I mean, the life that Schick leads is, is not where, it's not where Meg's family is going. Yet, on the other hand, there is this idea of like loss of status and not knowing what's coming next and the marriage is collapsing and his mother mm-hmm. is in rehab and will she recover? And there's so much uncertainty that I think there's something attractive for Mike about the... There's almost a resilience in Schick. Yes, there's a huge there? resilience in Schick, right? This notion that like if he can still be fun and interesting and a guy I want to spend time with then I might actually be okay. And it's that resilience that I think rubs off on him over the course of the story. Mm-hmm. And even, I, I mean, one of the most powerful moments in both the book and the film to me is where Mike says, I'm boring. I'm not interesting. I'm not good looking. And he, he does a little bit of a pity party. And Schick just looks at him and says, I've never been bored when I've yeah. been around you. Yeah. It's such a quiet, powerful moment where you realize, oh, this person has more faith in me than I have in myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes Schick such a fascinating character. And again, in a way, you almost don't get all that much about him because it's so much Mike's story. Yes. He's almost... he's. Is he a manic pixie dream boy, boy in a way? He is kind of. He kind of just parachutes into this narrative and saves this character and then leaves. Yeah. In a very literal way, right? Like there is absolutely no resolution for that character whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you make anything about the fact that he is Russian and that's part of the contributing factor? I tried to pull up some stats about the makeup of Germany because I've been to Berlin, but I've not, I mean, I'm not overly familiar with the country. It is fascinating to look at some of the recent statistics. So obviously in the last five to six years, Germany has become a hotbed of immigration Mm -hmm. due to the events that's happening around Europe people fleeing other countries and coming into Germany as a bit of a safe haven. And at the time that this book was published, there was actually a fair amount of openness to immigrants. And then, of course, if you start to look at the time that the adaptation was made into a film, the openness and the positivity surrounding immigration had really changed. And all of a sudden, those one in five Germans who were identifying as non-Germans or or recent immigrants to the country, the attitude towards German people, or from German people rather, was not good. So it says here, I looked up a a study, Mm -hmm. and the 
percentage of negative opinion peaked around the migration crisis of 2015 and 2016, which is right when the film is right coming when the out. Film is coming out, yeah. So in 2014, 44% of those surveyed held negative views of asylum seekers. And then in 2016, it rose to nearly 50%. And now, I think it says in 2018, 2019, it's two out of three people have a negative opinion of asylum seekers. Sheepers. Yeah. So the attitude has really changed. And I feel like this, it's kind of fascinating to look at the fact that when the book was published, the attitude was like, okay, you know, someone like Schick would have been more widely accepted and it wouldn't have been a big deal necessarily. Yeah. Whereas by the time the film comes out, people would be much more inclined to be negative about him as a person. Yeah. And it's interesting too that like he's an immigrant from Russia, but he's not coded as white, right? In the text. So no. The actor who portrays him in the film version, Anan Batbielg, um, he's Mongolian. Batbielg, like, yeah. He's a Mongolian-German young man, like from a family who actually worked, they were ambassadors from Mongolia in Berlin, um, oh, his okay. family. And so he's an other as an immigrant, but he's other also a racial other in a way that like, it's the first thing Issa notices about him, right? That he's not white. Mm-hmm. And so he, he stands as sort of this outsider significantly in the context of the text i think more explicitly maybe than well more explicitly obviously and then if that was not specified and so i think a lot about that it's a it's a particularly interesting racial othering because there is a lot of stereotypical racist language around mongolians and the way that language is used not in the text i just mean culturally and so it's interesting that they've that that's what Herndorf chooses to play on here rather than the actual migrant crisis that has been burbling since at least the mid 2000s that would have been about well that is about people coming from the Middle East right and from Africa and and so it's interesting that he's choosing a racial other and a racial other that has a lot of stereotyped baggage across Europe but he's not choosing he's not choosing one of the racial minorities that is sort of currently in flux in that moment yeah it's an interesting choice because it allows him to say a lot of things about how race functions in germany without having to maybe put his finger directly into the light socket (laughs) uh that is a great expression (laughs) so one of the other things that this book does well is it traffics in a lot of the tropes of the I don't want to say buddy comedy, but Mm -hmm. there's a historical legacy, particularly in young adult literature, about two boys going off and having a series of adventures, right? Yes. So in this case, Herndorf is... The reason that he wrote this book is actually because he went back and reread books of his childhood Mm -hmm. and thought about how he could try to integrate it into something a little bit realistic. So he quotes Lord of the Flies, Huckleberry Finn, and then a couple of porn texts, which I'm not familiar with, such (laughs) as Arthur Gordon Pine and Pick Nak America. Yeah, not me. Which I was like, okay, I don't know the former two. But he references them as books that had the quick elimination of a grown-up attachment figure, a long journey, and wide waters. So in this case, he switches out the wide waters for the car. So that's where the car, as a bit of a metaphor for like a journey that takes you down the river, comes from. It's interesting because 
Yes. Like, I mean, I, I read that observation too. And in many ways, I was just sort of thinking he answers the question we had off the top of the show, right? Which is like, what is YA? It is those things, right? It's like it is, yeah. the quick dispatch of the adults and some sort of journey to self-discovery, whether internal or external. Yeah. So did you have a favorite moment in their journey? Hmm. What kind of stood out to you? Because this book is wacky. Like yes. They get into a lot of unusual predicaments. Hijinks is the word that I would use. <laughs> Yes, Use accurate. The word hijinks. It's, yes. Do I have a favorite moment? I really love the f- weird family they stumble upon and have lunch with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so walk me through this. Okay, so they're looking for a grocery store. They come off the highway and they come into a small town and they park the lot up so it doesn't get spotted. And they go walk. <laughs> because they realize that they only brought cans and frozen food. <laughs> yes, yeah. And they don't have a can opener, nor do they have a microwave. No, they have nothing to eat. And so they are... Which is so, like, I'm sorry. To so teenage boy. I'm, it's so teenage boy. Like, <laughs> oh, we planned ahead. We brought food. Oh, wait, we can't eat any of this food or get to the food itself. <laughs> so they... um. They're walking along like basically this country lane and they come across a little boy and they're like, where's the grocery store? And he's like, we don't shop at the grocery store. And they're like, okay, okay, but where is it? And and the the boy's like, we don't shop at the grocery store. And the guys are like, uh, this is not helpful. And then they see his mother, the little boy's mother in this. So they walk up to her and they're like, where's the grocery store? And she's like, oh, we don't shop at the grocery store. (laughs) I loved it. I love that moment where I'm just picturing myself in their position thinking, what is with this town? Why can no one tell us where the location of this store is? It's pretty great. They know there's a grocery store because they saw a sign on the highway. That's why they got off the highway. So they are looking for a specific grocery store that does exist. And so the mom instead is like, why don't you just have lunch with us? And they're like, okay. This is kind of one of the first significant moments where they are apprehensive of trusting a stranger, particularly when someone has said, I'm not going to give you a straight answer. (laughs) Yes. And they're right to be untrusting at this point because they haven't had an experience that has invalidated that opinion. But then they say, okay, I guess we'll just go ahead with it. Because of course, (laughs) Schick is like hey okay let's just go with it because that's the way that he rolls right and of course mike is like no let's not do this i don't want to do that that's a good idea so they they do they stay and have lunch with this family and the woman's got like what she's got like six kids they're all dressed sort of he describes it as obviously clean but also like just really old-fashioned and kind of weird and sort of matching Mm -hmm. i pictured like european mormons yeah i did too and they're eating outside and she brings out what she calls Reese BC, which I Googled is basically it's an, it's like risotto. Um, oh, okay. with peas. It sounded delicious. It did sound delicious. And the boys, they love it. Like it's delicious. And this is again, one of, as Joe said, one of these first moments where someone is just genuinely kind to them for no reason. So they eat the Reese BC and then the kids bring out dessert and it's this sort of like white chocolate mousse with raspberries, mm-hmm. but they're in all these different sized this is my favorite part, actually. They're all in all these different mm-hmm. sized bowls. And the mom asks these questions about literature and science and geography and culture. And you have to answer a question right to get your dessert. So if you don't know any of the answers, like you get the smallest bowl. You don't bowl. get dessert, yeah. <laughs> and so the boys who are like 14 are sitting there at this table full of like six, eight, nine-year-olds who are just whooping them at these questions. The questions range from like being about Harry Potter to being about geography to being about political history. The boys can't answer any of them. 
Yeah. It really reinforces that they are not very good students. Yes. And then the mom <laughs> says, she's like, well, let's just give them the last two pots. And one of the kids is like, nope, that is not how we roll around <laughs> And so one of the kids is like, asks them like a pity question. It's like, what's the capital of Germany? And they both go, Berlin. And then they get to have dessert. And it's just this great weird scene because one of the things I like best about Herndorf is you know, we've talked a lot about how frustrated we are when it doesn't seem like authors trust their audience. Yes. Herndorf is like, you don't need to know why. You're yeah. having the same experience that these guys are. Like, yeah. they don't know why these this family is the way that they are, and you don't get to either. We're moving on. And then yeah. the best part is, and I this is one of those stupid little changes in the movie that just bummed me out. So as they're leaving the farm, mm-hmm. there's like a pumpkin next to the gate, and the woman <laughs> picks up the pumpkin and hands it to them and says, in case you get hungry later. So now they've got frozen pizzas, canned food, and a pumpkin. Mm -hmm. Now, in the the movie version, they change it to a watermelon, which annoys me because you can get into a watermelon and eat it. It makes sense. It makes sense. Whereas the pumpkin is just such a delightfully weird cherry on the delightfully weird Sunday that is this family. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they do end up finding the grocery store shortly after and they gorge themselves on junk food. But like... (laughs) As you do. As you do. But it's just such a great scene because it's, yes, it's setting them up for this journey of discovery that like, hey, guess what? People are actually pretty good. And it's another moment where Mike just has to trust Chick. Like he just has to do what he said and roll it. Just go with it. Just go with it. And it's just a perfect little narrative vignette. Like it's a great little road trip story. You know, you can picture telling that story later, right? Mm-hmm. That's a great story to tell later. Yes. Yeah. So memorable. It's so good. Um, I feel like I want to transition into the movie so yeah. that we can talk about my favorite scene. Oh, okay, cool. Mike Klingenberg. Seashore! <laughs> Wir haben einen neuen Mitschüler. Sein Name ist André Chicha. Chick. So as we said off the top, the book was adapted into a film, which is also called Schick. Yes. In English, it was called Goodbye Berlin. We said that on the yes. show last week. I just want to point out it wasn't wrong. I read it off our spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> so the film, yes, uh, is called Goodbye Berlin, and it was made in 2016 by a Turkish-German director named Fadi Atkin, and... I'm going to have to do a quick sidebar with this guy because this is a really unusual director to tackle a young adult adaptation. Oh, really? So this is an unusual choice because this guy makes prestige pictures. His films tend to get selected for the Berlinale or they make the shortlist for Germany's submission for best foreign film. He made a film called In the Fade with Diane Kruger. Oh! 
And it won the Golden Globe Award for Best Foreign Film in 2017. His films are often incredibly political. So they're often about immigration, about violence, about like cultural disharmony. So it kind of makes sense for him to tackle this. But at the same time, it's very unusual. Every once in a while, he's made one other film that kind of falls into this a comedy called Soul Kitchen. And he made it because he needed a break after making a tough film. But this is an unusual choice, like to have a pedigree director make mm, this film. That is. I just wanted to highlight that as a, a bit of a like, wow, okay, this is not someone who would normally be making a movie like this. Do you think it's connected to how popular the book was? I have a feeling. I think they wanted someone who could come in and deliver the goods. Ironically enough, that was not this director. So Atkin was not the original director of this film. Oh. Originally, it was David, I'm going to mispronounce the last name, but it's, I think, Went mm-hmm. or Wenent. And he was actually the choice of the author. Oh. He left the production seven weeks before shooting began. And then Atkin came in and he actually also recast the main role. Oh, wow. So originally, the actor who plays Mike, who is Tristan Goebel, he was actually just a background actor in the school set scenes. Really? Yeah. And then Atkin came in and said, no, this boy that was originally cast is too old. He doesn't look like a believable 14 year old. I was going to say, I love that they both look their age. Oh, yeah. Once again, foreign films doing it right. American films could learn a thing or two from this. It makes such a shocking difference, especially in a story like this where their youth, like if these were 18 year olds, the story wouldn't make any sense. Right? Yeah, because they would be able to pass for the legal driving age. Yes. And then there wouldn't be any conflict. There wouldn't need to avoid adults or take back roads or go off the beaten path. Yeah, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. So we have Tristan Cobble as Mike, as you mentioned. We've got Anan Batbeleg as Schick. And then we've got Nicole Mercedes Mueller as Issa. And really, nobody else kind of matters as no. much in this. <laughs> So the film I gathered was relatively well received. I don't have box office figures, so I can't tell you whether or not it financially succeeded. Mm. But uh, I had not heard of this film before we read this. So again, this is another case of films having maybe a significant cultural impact in a specific area and then not having the wider distribution to get out into the world. We don't know anything about that with Canadian cinema. We don't know anything about that at all. Oh, it's a rare, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you think about the film? Really enjoyed it. Found the change at the ending totally understandable for a film adaptation, but disappointing just in terms of it's a little bit easier than the book ending, which is, you know, very often the case. But I really like the casting, as I said, in general. I just thought it was really good. They all look 14, even Issa. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I guess my two complaints were the ending and the flattening of the class issue. So in, I mean, I know our listeners are probably sick of me battling on about class, but in the film version, they take out all the stuff about the failing business and things. So Well, it's in there briefly. Well, he complains about the environmentalists. Like you hear him talking about environmental fascists. But if you hadn't read the book, you'd have no idea what that was in reference to. There's no sense that they're selling the house. They're still, you know, very wealthy. And so it's not a big deal. And I don't think they could have done it in the film in a, in a particularly effective way, I suspect. Mm-hmm. 
Although I did like that one moment in the film that's not in the book, from what I remember, where they're driving down the road and Schick takes Mike's cell phone and yes. tosses it out the window. Yes. And Mike gets really upset and he takes a bottle of vodka out of the glove yes. compartment and throws it out the window. And you're like, oh no, both of their vices are now gone. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty good, actually. It was neat to see the relationship to technology in the, in the movie, especially. I was sort of jarred. I was like, oh, yeah, cell phones, because so many of the YA texts we've been looking at lately have been either set in a time when there wasn't cell phones or from a time when there wasn't cell phones. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of neat to have them back. Yeah, so those are my two issues with it. But overall, I really enjoyed the film. I thought that it was beautifully shot. My God, that countryside. Yes, yeah. So the cinematography is done by Rainier Klausman. And this whole film visually pops, particularly when they get on the road and they're out driving around. The scenes inside the house, you know, it's a very nice house and it's it's fine. So in the film, it's much more evident that Mike just retreats to his room whenever yes. he feels like life isn't going the way he wants it to. And it, it's a really big room much like we've seen in American films, but... It's depressing. It's depressing. It looks so industrial. Like, the house has that rich anonymity feel to it, where it has no personality. It's not visually captivating, despite the fact that it's big and there's, you know, lots of beautiful stuff. But there's this great scene where he comes home after school, after learning that he hasn't been invited to the party, and he's just in the kitchen, and he looks swallowed up. Yep. by the geography and the appliances like he's so isolated in this gross expensive house and then you contrast that by scenes like where they try to use the car to drive uh, to write their initials in a cornfield yes. which apparently the scene became so iconic that that's why they decided to use it as the film poster which is oh. the two boys standing on the car that's partially in the middle of a field which I just love. To me, that's that's so emblematic of what this film is about, where they just plow into a cornfield. You can't see anything. The camera literally is positioned from their point of view. So it's a yes. point of view shot. And they're just driving through corn. Can't see a foot in front of the car. And they almost plow into a herd of cows. <laughs> they had a stunt driver on the roof for those scenes. Good. <laughs> That's mildly reassuring because I don't know how you would do that without endangering your actors, but also children. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I loved how bright, like the blues and the greens, like it's a summer movie. It's it taking is, place yeah. in like the heat of summer. You can feel the heat kind of emanating off the pavement in these scenes, mm-hmm. but in a really like attractive, inviting way. Like you want to be on this journey with them. Yes. And I think color has a lot to do with that. Yes. So my favorite scene, particularly from the film, and I think partially it's just because by this point in the film, there's an emotional heft to it, is when they picked up, is a, or rather she has tagged along forcibly, and they drive to a dam or like a lake. Yes. And they decide to go partially skinny dipping, partially well, they haven't bathed in a couple of days. And particularly Izza. They want Izza to bathe because she stays. Yeah. Because she's been hanging out at the dump and yeah. she smells bad. <laughs> yeah. But I love the intimacy of this scene. And I don't mean intimacy because Mike and Isa might hook up. But there's just something so authentically beautiful about it. And this is really where that I love you Beth Cooper scene mm-hmm. came into play. Where I thought, you know, that was kind of the only scene that worked for us in the film version of I Love You Beth Cooper. Is mm-hmm. where they sit at the dock and they just have this meaningful moment. But even in that case, it's ruined because there's that reinforcement of gender roles that yep. we hated. Yep. Whereas here, 
it's just this beautiful scene where she just asks him to cut her hair for her mm-hmm. and he has to use these little scissors. So it's such a, a lengthy drawn out process and you can just feel the connection that they have. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, it made me kind of swoon like a young love kind mm-hmm. of vibe. And I thought it was so gorgeously shot and it's almost even just a silent moment. And I think it works so well. Yeah, I do too. I thought all the young actors were quite outstanding in their parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that you didn't love the end, but we've not actually touched oh, okay. on what is different. So, so go you ahead. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so as you mentioned, Brenna, the book has this protracted series of weird incidents where they like crash the car, they have to go to the hospital, they have to get back into the car, they drive on the highway, and then they have the accident with the pig truck they more or less get rid of almost all of the third act. And actually, Akin is on the record as saying that he feels the book gets a little ridiculous in that third act. (laughs) I like it when it's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think he approached this film, he wanted to make a grounded film. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to try to capture an authentic teenage experience. And he felt that there was just a little too much unbelievability that they could drive you know, over an embarkment and flip the car and go to the hospital and give the false name and not get arrested and then get back into the car and have it work and everything. So we just do away with all of that. They also don't go to the cabin with the pedophile Nazi, which is, again, if we're thinking about Germany and yeah, its I'm not history, sure that would have flown. either that or it would have been like we need to dedicate more time to yeah. this because that's just not a character you're going to throw in for no. a two minute sequence. So what ends up happening is they think that they're being pursued by the police. So they drive into the forest and they end up on this very rickety bridge that is made of wooden logs and they're surrounded by water on both sides. So in a way, this is actually an accurate capture of what Herndorf was trying to do with the book, right? This is the water that they have to pass. Yep. And the car ends up getting a little bit stuck because there's a gap in the road, a literal gap in the road that they have to figure (laughs) out. And at this point, Schick ends up injuring his foot and that's why he can't drive. So Mike has to take over and then they get on the highway and then they have their car accident. So this actually worked for me very well because it's so symbolic, their entire journey across the bridge and how they have to work together. But then Schick gets injured and Mike has to actually assume an active role. Like, for the first time on this entire journey, he is the one in the driver's seat. Yes. And it feels like a nice encapsulation of what the scenes in the book were trying to do, but it's more expedient, so we're just getting to the end. Because at this point, the film is like, all right, let's move <laughs> Let's wrap this up. Yeah. <laughs> so you feel like, what, No, that actually, I don't mind of any of that. That all is fine with me. I didn't. I didn't mourn the loss of those scenes particularly, although I I really like the speech therapist. No, Mm -hmm. the part about the ending that I didn't like as much was the way, so with the book, it's lots of ambivalence, but it's, we find out a little bit about what's going to happen with Tatiana, we find out a little bit, but we have this sort of like, there is a conclusion, at least as far as consequence goes. Schick is in juvenile hall, (laughs) right? Like that happens. And we know that Mike gets community service Mm -hmm. the film ends basically with uh shik saying i can't stay here like they so they have the crash they have a crash involving pigs (laughs) and shik says i can't stay here they'll put me in an orphanage which p.s is the first time we've had any conversation about yes shik's backstory at all and uh mike says okay 
you go. And so he goes. And <laughs> and that's the last of him that we that's ever see. That's the last of him that we ever see. Yeah. And so there's this sort of almost mythological quality to Shik in the film yes. version that I yeah. don't actually like for him. Well, because if this film is trying to be realist for the most part to then suggest that this character can just fade away into the night i mean he's limping he couldn't have gotten that no, far no yeah i so that i didn't like as much the other thing i didn't like as much is that in the book when all the consequences shake out mike's dad beats the s out of him yeah which was unexpected it's unexpected and it's disturbing in the film he like cuffs him once and then kind of goes to do it again. Well, he sucker punches him in slow motion. Yeah, yes. But it's not the sort of sustained beating. Like in the book, right. Mike okay. is lying on the ground, looking outside, deep breathing through the pain as his father kicks him over, over, over again, right? Yeah. In the film version, and I will say this because I actually watched the film ending before I finished the book. Okay. In the film version, to me, without any context, it felt like the dad was just like... He just snapped, and he doesn't know how to deal with his emotions, and he's hit his kid. And it's horrible, but it feels like a one-off. Well, it's also almost played for comedy, right? So the, yes. the impact of that slow motion where the dad literally jumps in the air to sucker yes. punch Mike, and it freeze frames before you see the connection, mm -hmm. it's almost high comedy. Yes. So it undermines a little bit of the intention, which is to say, this person is terrible. He beats his child. Yes. Like, in the film, you could almost think, like, this is a one-off. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know his dad is an arse, but maybe this is the first time he's ever actually hit Mike. Okay. In the book, you can't mistake that. Like, nobody beats their kid like that the first time they beat their kid. Yeah. You get a deeper sense of the dysfunction in the family in the book sort of more generally. And that's mm -hmm. one scene that really made that tension clear to me. Right. I think it's why I hate the dad so much. Like, in the movie, he's an arse. There's no doubt about it. Like, I wouldn't wouldn't want him for my dad or a friend or an acquaintance. But in the book, he's horrible. Yeah, he's, he's terrible. Horrible, horrible man. Yeah. I will say, I think the ending scenes of Mike and his mother having oh, yes. that almost euphoric yes. bonding where Beautiful. they just toss the expensive possessions into the pool and when she's dancing underwater in her high heels i love that yes yeah i almost felt like it worked better in the film just because mm -hmm. the visualization of that is really powerful do the police come in the film i don't think they so. don't no. no so it's so sort of left it's as this just moment of a moment for them yeah, yeah which i like better yeah yeah, and then that's how it ends. It's like, well, I mean, we get the scene where he goes back to school and everybody treats him differently, but... But even that, you get more um, you get more finality. Like, so he tells us in a voiceover, he gets the note from Tatiana, which happens in the book as well. Mm -hmm. But in the book, he gets a note from Tatiana and he writes back and the teacher ends up reading the note aloud, but you never get any resolution of that relationship. Yeah. In the film version, you get this voiceover and he's kind of like, well, I'm not that interested in Tatiana anymore. And it's like, Why? <laughs> So the other thing that doesn't happen is no he doesn't Issa. get a note from Issa. Yeah, yeah. no Issa How did you feel about that? It's interesting, right? Because I should like it more because it introduces ambiguity for Issa's character. But instead, I just kind of felt like the filmmaker had forgotten about Issa by the time we got to that point. Yeah. So I said early on uh, when we were first introducing this that I felt like people could watch the film and maybe misinterpret it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I read a couple of different reviews. There's not a ton online, but there's a lot of people who feel that the film just feels too familiar, like it's not doing anything 
original or it's falling back on the tropes of young adult literature. Right. And I feel like part of that is that if you just watched this film, you didn't read the book, you would look at it and feel unsatisfied by yeah. some of this resolution. Like, why do you introduce this girl and then not use her and then she never comes back? And I feel like the film works really well in conjunction with the book. But if you watched it independently, you would probably be less satisfied with it. Yes, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Okay. Uh, shall we move into some YA bingo? I think we shall. Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. So, what kinds of things do you have? Okay, absentee adults. Oh, absolutely. Abuse. Mm-hmm. Unlikely friendships. Yep. An almost sexual awakening. Can we have that? Um... Yeah, because I think at the end of the day, the book and the film are about Mike coming to a realization that his idolization of Tatiana is not healthy. Like, yes. he's not actually interested in her. Right. I agree. And then here's one you can argue with me on. Okay. Musicality in the film version. I oh, really yeah. love the score. Hmm. I actually also felt like there was some really strategic use of, like, pop songs. Yes. But, oh, we've we've actually not talked about it. There's a recurring joke in both the book and the film <laughs> about how they only have a single cassette and it's piano and they hate it originally, but then they come to love it at the end of the text. And so when you're in the film version, whenever they're in the car, it's that piano music is playing, but then they'll mm -hmm. be like, they'll be like out and running through fields and there'll be like this amazing, like, you know, yeah. acoustic guitar pop song that fits the emotion of the scene perfectly. And then they get yeah. back in the car and it's piano. piano. Music. <laughs> <And then> it... <laughs> but that also starts to work perfectly it works perfectly and by the end of it they're like trying to sing along with the instrumental piano music it's pretty great mm -hmm. i'm gonna add do bad for the greater good because oh, good. yeah we're back to lying territory and stealing cars to find ourselves stealing police uh oh officers God, that, bikes. Scene is so good. <laughs> that scene is so good it's very funny yeah and and obviously a ton of cgi yeah just so much CGI. <laughs> CGI Color correcting on those field. fields. <laughs> uh, okay, I think okay. that's about all I had. Cool. Well, I really want to know if you have read Why We Took the Car, either in English or its original German. If you want to get in touch with us, you can using the hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitters. That'll get you both of us. Joe, how can they find you? I am at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And again, if you've got longer things you want to send us or ideas for minisodes, you can shoot those through to hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. And next week, Joe, this is a Brenna pick. It is, yes. It is. We are looking at um, It's Kind of a Funny Story, which is a novel by Ned Vizzini. So the novel came out in 2006, and the film is from, I believe, 2010. Mm -hmm. And it stars Keira Gilchrist, Emma Roberts, and Zach Galifianakis. Oh my gosh. Always Emma Roberts. <laughs> Always Emma Roberts. <laughs> um, now, this is a cichlet, but do we need a trigger warning, Brenna? Yeah, Because this I think is about self-harm, right? It is. It's about self-harm. So yeah, I think it's good to give folks a heads up before they pick up the book. Uh, so the protagonist of the book 
hospitalizes himself when he's having suicidal thoughts. And it should be known. This is an own voices story. So Ned Vizzini struggled with um, depression and suicidal ideation. It is not an own voices adaptation. So it's worth thinking about that distinction. I think a lot of critics certainly did talk about you know, you've got this story that's like an incredibly personal reflection on an experience of being in a psychiatric hospital. Can you adapt that in a way that is empathetic? We'll find out next week. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Way to load it up there, Brenna. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I guess until next week when we are tackling It's Kind of a Funny Story. I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Oh,